from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Senate will vote on the Compromise National Defense Authorization Act after the House passed it Tuesday, 355 to 78. President Trump has threatened to veto the bill because it doesn't include a provision about social media companies, and it does include a provision to rename military bases named after Confederate leaders. Defense News reports the House vote indicates it could override a presidential veto. The Space Force will get its own rapid acquisition center. Air Force Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics Will Roper says SpaceWorks will help the force integrate commercial technology into its mission quickly. FedScoop reports the Space, Works, uh, Space Force will base SpaceWorks in Los Angeles. Air Force leaders were in Florida today for the renaming of two bases involved with Space Force operations. Patrick Air Force Base is now Patrick Space Force Base, and Cape Canaveral Air Force Station is now Cape Canaveral Space Force Station. Defense One reports the guest list included Air Force Secretary Barbara Barrett, Chief of Space Operations General Jay Raymond, and Air Force Chief of Staff General C.Q. Brown. The General Services Administration's Centers of Excellence program has an official endorsement from Congress. President Trump has signed a bill that supports the COEs with policy and money. Bob Work is former Deputy Secretary of Defense. Bob, welcome. It's good to see you again. I call on your knowledge of the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center at the Defense Department. The Jake is one of the Centers of Excellence, and we talked a little bit before we went on the air that all of the other COEs the General Services Administration have undertaken have been to go into an organization that is experiencing some difficulty and help it recover from that difficulty. That's not the case at all with the Jake. The Jake seems to be on a, a very high-level track, very accomplished track. What does the Centers of Excellence program mean for the Jake? What tools does it have, and what tools can it share with the rest of the government? Well, it's great to be here, uh, Francis. Uh, these Centers of Excellence were all part of IT modernization across the government. I don't think it will come as a surprise to be the list uh, today that the a, the modernization literacy of the uh, of the federal government is pretty low, and these centers of excellence were designed to help accelerate. Uh, IT modernization across the federal government. So there was a center of excellence for AI, which you've already talked about. There's one for cloud adoption. There's one for data analytics. There's one for infrastructure optimization. I don't know if you remember the Defense Digital Service. It's like a SWAT team of very, very capable coders and uh, people who really understand AI DevSec Ops. Um, and they could be called down anywhere in the department to fix a software problem. So the one that I was most uh, most part of was there was a program called OCX, which is a control system for the next generation uh, global positioning system. And uh, we were having a devil of a time getting that thing right. And the DDS came down and helped us straighten it out. So you are right. The J is the Department of Defense's internal center of excellence. 
But it turns out that the Jake was one of the very first customers of the GSA AI Center of Excellence, and they really helped each other. Uh, the Jake did not have any of its own contracting or acquisition authorities. And the GSA AI um, Center of Excellence was able to provide that to them. They also provided a rep right on the staff of the Jake. And I recently received a email from Jack Shanahan, the first director of the Jake. And I asked him, you know, what did you think of the relationship? And he was glowing. He said, they really helped us in as we stood up to provide us with capabilities we did not initially have. Now it's more of a relationship uh, between two established organizations that are really helping, trying to help each other. Uh, the Jake being able to provide the AI, I mean, the centers of excellence with an example of who they have actually helped. And uh, the Jake has received a lot of support from the AI centers of excellence. So they don't compete in any way. Uh, they pretty much help each other. What is the right role for an organization like the Jake that lives in the defense space to work with civilian agencies either through the centers of, Center of Excellence with GSA or directly to help them understand the possibilities of artificial intelligence, Bob? Well, you hit it on the head on the last, your last part of the question, Francis. I mean, the Jake is designed to champion artificial AI-enabled applications throughout the department, uh, putting, for example, machine learning algorithms on sensors so that the sensors themselves can find objects and determine information that can then be sent directly to an effector, for example, uh, rather than going to a central processing node. Uh, they also were uh, looking into command support tools, decision support tools, AI helping develop courses of action and AIs recommending which plans uh, would appear to be uh, the most logical and potentially the most successful. So the Joint AI Center is really shifting to applications inside the Department of Defense. And I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think I would be wrong in speaking for uh, Lieutenant General uh, Groen, who's the new director of the Jake to say, he will use any tool to help him do that. And if uh, the AI Center of Excellence can say, look, we can bring to you these new capabilities that you can readily use, then he's going to exploit that as much as possible. Just as he is reaching out to a wide variety of small venture capitalist firms who have unique AI capabilities. So um, I'm actually, you know, this is something that I've been waiting for for several years where the federal government and the Department of, Self, the Department of Defense itself organizes itself to start exploiting the remarkable promise of artificial intelligence. Bob Work, great to have you back. Thanks very much for joining me, I appreciate it. Great to be here, Francis. Please have a happy holidays and stay safe. And same to you, thanks. Up next, the coming defense budget trajectory straight ahead on Government Matters a new defense leadership facing a new budget reality. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The Trump administration is working on a $722 billion defense budget for fiscal year 2022. That's unusual for several reasons. Seamus Daniels is program manager and research associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Seamus, welcome back. It's good to see you. What's your takeaway from this budget? What does this mean in your view that the administration is working on this budget at this time? Francis, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, so typically, it's a multi-year process to develop a budget for a given fiscal year. So that's not surprising. Um, what is surprising is the fact that the Trump administration could publicly release this budget and that they could publicly release it um, and what the contents actually within it. What we hear right now is that for the DOD, it remains at $722 billion, which was projected in last year's budget. Um, but what the Trump administration might be trying to do is get its priorities out early so it can use that to criticize the Biden administration when it comes in, when it takes over the FY22 budget and then releases it uh, later this year. That's the surprise, isn't it? That The numbers, obviously, as you state, not a surprise. It's the number everyone would be expecting. But the, the reasons that I alluded to in the introduction are the fact that they're releasing such a level of detail and that they're releasing it to the public at all. Is that fair to say? Yes, that is. Um, because typically the process is that we don't actually know what is within this budget. Uh, the government prepares it, DOD prepares it, working with OMB, and then they would hand it off to the incoming administration. At that point, the Biden administration would be able to work on its own budget priorities before releasing that to Congress. The other striking thing about this to me is we have recently the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, out saying people have to be aware of budget realities, basically implying 722 might be a pipe dream. There's just so many moving pieces here right now, Seamus. I wonder how one goes about trying to figure out where they might land and what that might mean depending where you sit, whether you sit in the Pentagon or whether you sit in a defense contractor or whether you sit in a company that sells services to the department or whatever. Yeah, I, I think we have to first look at what DOD projected um, going out into the future in this past budget. And we have to keep in mind that this was before COVID happened and they were projecting a flat top line. Um, so in this request uh, for FY21, <laughs> which we don't actually have a budget for FY21 yet, let's keep in mind, it was $705 billion. That's going to be flat going out into the future. Uh, but we have a lot of things to consider, uh, especially the impact of COVID uh, with a deficit last year that was the highest since World War II. But I think a lot of this comes down to whether Congress wants to tackle the deficit. And obviously, economic recovery from COVID is going to take priority. So we may not see that in this fiscal year. Uh, but moving forward, Congress may decide to pass uh, deficit reduction measures, which could have a significant impact on the defense budget. When we see a downturn in defense spending, uh, historically, the most significant downturns have come uh, after periods of high deficits. What I learned from your comments, Seamus, is that I may have gotten ahead of myself at, in thinking about the Trump administration's FY22 budget request when you're correct. We don't have a 21 uh, deal yet, and we're still we're right in the middle of fiscal 2021. What's the implication there for how one thinks about moving forward when we don't even know what we know 
what we need to know about today? I think it makes it difficult, um, especially depending how the next week plans out for defense planners. Currently, where it stands is that Congress is trying to negotiate a short-term continuing resolution uh, for a week or so, so then they can pass a complete uh, FY21 budget for the entire government. Um, and they also have to pass the uh, FY21 National Defense Authorization Act as well. Um, so there's a lot to tackle before the Biden administration comes in. How do you see those various things going down, basically, Seamus? Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the program, the House passed the NDA overwhelmingly. If President Trump vetoes it, on the House side at least, that, that veto could be overridden. Expectation is the Senate will be the same uh, vote counters I read this morning. We're talking about 80 couple votes in the Senate, which would be uh, more than enough to override a presidential veto. What's the significance of that regarding all of this spending? We haven't had a veto in 60 years or something like that. Does any of that mean anything vis-a-vis -vis the budget prospects for the department in the coming months, rest of this fiscal year? Well, the NDAA doesn't actually impact the, the budget level. Um, the biggest impact it has on the budget is that it authorizes a pay raise uh, for military personnel. So that is significant. Um, but in terms of the defense budget itself, what we're looking at is the status of this omnibus appropriations bill and whether they'll be able to pass that before the new year. Because if they're not able to pass that budget now, that means it'll be kicked over likely uh, to the Biden administration when it comes into office in January. And the military leaders, the uniformed military leaders, have been saying for years, continuing resolutions are the, the next to a shutdown are the worst possible outcome. That's kind of where we are now. Uh, Friday was going to be the deadline. Now it looks like next Friday is going to be the deadline, and there are conversations about a long-term CR till February. This is when we start to get into that potentially destructive territory, isn't it, Seamus? Yes, Francis, and I think you hit on a good point there. Um, it's especially when we have longer term continuing resolutions, when we have longer term CRs, that really impacts programs, acquisition programs abilities to spend money and to spend money on time and keep a program running on time. A shorter CR doesn't have as much of an impact, but when we're having continuing resolutions stretch into the new year, uh, that's, that's becoming an issue uh, for defense programs to run effectively. Seamus Daniels, thanks very much as always. Thanks for having me, Francis. Up next, collaborating on research and development to win the great power competition. Straight ahead on Government Matters, working with allies to push China. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Welcome back. The National Defense Authorization Act the House passed Tuesday includes a boost in research and development funds 
for the Army's Big Six modernization priorities. Teaming with allies on research and development could give the whole military an edge in competing with China. Bradley Bowman is senior director for the Center on, Mil uh, on Military and Political Power at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Uh, Brad, welcome back. It's good to see you. What's the collaboration landscape look like right now in R&D with us and with United States allies? Well, no, thanks for the uh, opportunity to join you. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Um, and to answer your question, I, I'd say there are a lot of good things going on with our allies in terms of military cooperative research and development. But I think there's definitely room for improvement. And just zooming out for a moment, if I can, you know, it's important to remember that U.S. military superiority that many Americans have taken really for granted for so many years is based on two primary things. It's really the quality and training of our people and uh, the sophistication and capabilities of our technology. And what I worry a lot of Americans don't fully appreciate is that that military supremacy has been eroding for several years. And we're in a situation now where some of our authoritarian rivals and dare I say adversaries are wielding technologies as good as ours or better. I want to pull back for a moment because the R&D discussion, I think, has been prominent front and center for a number of years. There's a terminology change that I've seen over the last maybe five to ten years, and that's to add two more letters, T&E, testing and evaluation. What's the difference in that dialogue mean over that last half decade to decade, Brad? What, what's that evolution meant, and are we doing as good a job at the T&E as we're doing at the R&D? You know, that's, that's a great question, and, um, and, and, and I welcome it. You know, research and development, not to oversimplify, is, you know, basically what, is, what are our troops going to need in the future? Like, we, a lot, we talk a lot about current readiness. Can our forces do right now what we expect them to do? And sometimes we overcomplicate it. Really, when we're talking about research and development and tests and evaluation, we're talking about will they be ready in the future? Are we doing today? to help them be ready in the future, ready to do what? What we ask them to do. And so research and development comes in several forms. One is kind of near term, oh my goodness, uh, ISIS has drones now, how do we shoot those down? Oh my gosh, you know, we need, we need something and right now, you know, we, we feel that in six months. We've done a lot of that since 9-11. There's also the kind of research and development that says, hey, what's gonna be that strategic surprise in 10 years that the Chinese are gonna field that are just really gonna fundamentally change the geostrategic landscape? So there's kind of different bins, but to go to your question is, you have that seed money, that government seed money that used to be the most of what our nation spent back in the 15s and 60s that is now frankly dwarfed by the private sector, uh, which is focused on kind of putting those capabilities together. But once you have what you think might be a good solution, you have to test it, you have to evaluate it. You know, I had a conversation last night with the former head of Army Cyber Command, uh, Lieutenant General Retired Ed Cardone. He was making that very point. You have to do the demonstrations. You have to do the exercises. And that's where so much of the learning occurs. You have to get out of the labs at some point and see if it actually works. You referenced a moment ago that there is room for improvement. Where is there room for improvement, in, in specifically regarding collaboration with allies across the RDT&E landscape? No, thank you. One, one example that I've really focused on my research really over the last two years is a case related to Israel. You know, Israel may not be the first country that a lot of Americans think of in terms of um, uh, a country that we can work with, but when I survey America's assets and liabilities in this great power competition we're having with China and Russia, 
in the assets column, I put a leading assets for us as our alliances and our partners. And we have a lot of democratic tech savvy allies that we can work together with more systematically. Now, people that know this issue will quickly say, oh my goodness, we do so much already with Israelis. We do missile defense. We do counter, we f help find terror tunnel uh, to develop technologies that we've used on our, on our southern border. We do so much. But what I found as I dug into the research is that a lot of this is after the fact. Let me give you one specific example. Since 2011 and even earlier, the Israelis have fielded technology on their tanks and their armored vehicles to intercept incoming rockets and mortars. The United States did not have anything like that. And in 2018, then Chief of Army Chief of Staff General Milley testified that our defense industry, defense innovation base, as excellent as it is, could not produce anything like that. So we went and procured that trophy active protection system from the Israelis, put it on our M1 tanks, deployed those tanks to Europe, and which are now deterring aggression from Russia. Very cool. That's awesome. But listen to the dates that I said, 2011, 2018. So that meant we had American tanks and armored vehicles operating around the world in dangerous places without this technology. In most cases, we got away with that. But the pace of the technology competition with China that we're in, we can't do business that way anymore. So instead of finding belated solutions for problems that have been around for years, we have to work more systematically up front to prevent those capability gaps from emerging in the first place. And, 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 and our, our research institute has developed some ideas on how to do that. Less than a minute left. What's the most important one or two of those ideas that the incoming Biden administration could implement to get the biggest bang for the buck quickly? You know, uh, 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 President-elect Biden understands the value of alliances. I encourage him to look at Section uh, 12, uh, the, the fiscal year 21 conference report, Look at the language related to the U.S.-Israel Operations Technology Working Group. That working group, they should stand it up. They should uh, implement it as envisioned by the original sponsors of both the bipartisan House and Senate bills. And that will ensure that both U.S., Israeli, and ultimately all of our Democratic allies never confront a fight in which our adversaries have better weapons than our troops do. Bradley Bowman of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, thanks very much. It's great to have you back. Thank you, sir. I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune into the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.